Okay, good morning, Boker Tov, everyone. Uh, I have some good, bad news and good news. The bad news is this is our last class till the end of July. It's bad news for you, it's good news for me. I'm going on vacation. <laughs> but the uh, good news for everyone is Rabbi Moskowitz will be teaching it in my absence. So continue to come Tuesday mornings at 9.30. He'll be teaching this as well as uh, continuing his Tehillim series on Thursday morning. Okay, this week we have the privilege of learning, of studying Parshas Baaloscha, page 774 in the Yorah's Girl Stone Chumash. The Haloscha is an amazing packed Parsha, which so much in it that uh, we'll see how far we get. Hopefully we'll begin with our overview and touch on different points in the Parsha, and then I want to delve into the very end of the Parsha, the story of the episode of Miriam, and Miriam gossiping about her brother, what did she do that was so egregious, the consequence that she suffered, and uh, a little bit about what we learn from that in terms today um, as a precedent for how we daven for those who are ill how we pray for those who are sick, and some lessons we can extract and extrapolate from there. Parsha begins with the story of the menorah. Speak to Aaron, and when you light the lamp towards the face of the menorah, the seven lights, all shivas haneros should be mul penea menorah, should face the center light. We've discussed a lot of this in the past. Every year it's... Uh, challenge to not want to say everything we've said previously because each insight in Dvar Torah is so rich and so incredible and so exciting, but we'll try to control ourselves. So we'll only add, we'll only add some new ones. So Mul Panea Menorah, what does that mean? What does that mean? The seven, second branch of the menorah from the east, second one from the east was known as the Ner Tamid, the eternal light, because the Gemara Menachos tells us that it was constantly lit. It never went out. It was 24-7 always lit. And the Gemara says it served as a reminder that the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, intensely rested with Kla Yisrael. With Kla Yisrael. And of course, we imitate that today, every shul, which is a Mikdash Ma'at. It's a temple in miniature. We have, please tell me it's on, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> we have a Ner Tamid. We have an eternal light, which is forever lit. No matter what activity, no matter whether the shul is 3 a.m. or it's the middle of uh, Musaf on Yom Kippur, that Ner Tamid is always lit and it is reminiscent of the menorah, that reminder, the light, like a neshama represented by a light. Torah is a light. The idea that a Baruch Hu, his shechina, illuminates the world. It's a light that illuminates the world. The Ramban in our parsha begins by telling us that Aaron HaKohen was comforted and was consoled. At the end of last week's parsha, he was already a shtickle depressed. Here you have the 12 Nesim, they're bringing these magnificent gifts to the Mishkan. They're each offering what looks on the surface as the exact same gift we studied last week, that the Nesim Rachman Aliba boy. You could have all Klai Yisrael doing the same mitzvah shofar, the same lulav and esrog, the same lighting the Shabbos candles. But everyone brings their own attitude, their own perspective, their own kavana, their own intention, and their own mindfulness. And each of us contribute a unique and distinct and singular thought process to what we're doing. And that's what shapes and molds it to be separate. So these 12 Nassim look like they're bringing the same thing, but they each brought something different. Rahman Ali Baboy, they each gave their heart and soul. And Aaron says, what about me? This we've discussed in the past. What about me? If I'm the Ribbono Shalom, I say, what about you? What do you mean, what about you? What are you, two years old, Aaron? You get what you get, you don't get and you don't get upset. We all know how to tell our children that. What do you mean, what about me? Yeah, you're not the Nassim. You're Aaron. You're the Kohen Gadol. They get to bring the Karbanos. They're bringing these initial gifts, and you get to serve in the Mishkan. What do you mean, what about me? 
Why is Gadosh Baruch Hu validating, even acknowledging that sense of jealousy or envy in Aaron? We've discussed in the past, and we won't now, I think it was last year's Parsha Shir, that sometimes envy can be channeled in a healthy way. We've often talked about midos means a measure. We don't have, uh, we don't categorically reject any qualities except for two, which we're not supposed to have in any measure in our repertoire. Supposed to be exceedingly humble. We learn from later in this parsha, Haish Moshe Anav Mod. Moshe was extraordinarily humble. We should walk in his path and be humble, and we should never get angry. Those two qualities don't belong in any measure, in any midah. All other midos belong in a measure. Where is the measure of envy? Where is envy healthy? In what measure should it be there? Kinesso from Tarbachachma. Because if I'm jealous that someone else has such kavana, they know so much Torah, they're predisposed to do much, so much chesed. They love to give tzedakah. If I'm jealous or envious of a ruchni component in them and that drives and motivates me to do more, to be more, that's something healthy. Kodesh Baruch Hu says, fantastic. Aaron says, what about me? Shem says, fantastic. I love it that you feel, what about me? What about me when it comes to close to drawing close to Hashem? Hashem says, don't worry. They got the karbanos. They got the gifts of the nesim. Ba'aloscha you and your progeny will always light the menorah. Don't be jealous, don't be worried. So the Ramban says, what do you mean your progeny forever? What about when the Mishkan is gone? So the Ramban quotes a tradition. You and your children will always light the menorah. Mikan, here is an allusion in the Torah to the holiday of? Hanukkah. A biblical allusion to the holiday of Hanukkah. And because of that, Rabbi Salavitchik suggests, maybe that's why the Ramah in Hilchus Hanukkah and Perik Dalad refers to the lighting of the Hanukkah menorah as a mitzvah chaviva ma'od. It's a very beloved mitzvah. It represents the Nirtamid in the Mishkan, in the Beis Amikdash, which serves as a testimony that the Divine Presence still rests upon us. When we light those Shabbos candles, when we light those Hanukkah candles, when we come to shul or even when we're not in shul, but we know that the, term, the Nirtamid is eternally lit, then we know that no matter what is going on and what the Jewish people face, that light is eternally lit. It remains lit. And it will continue to be lit. Nobody and nothing they can try, and they have systematically, and they've succeeded to a degree to extinguish it and to turn off that light, but nobody can fully extinguish that light. The nair is tamid. It remains lit forever, and that's represented through Hanukkah and Aaron lighting the Aaron lighting the menorah. So we said that there are seven branches and they're mul penea menorah. They all face the middle branch. And there are a lot, a lot of interpretations of what that means. The different branches that face the center branch. The Vilna Gaon has a tradition that the different branches represent the different disciplines of knowledge, which he and we embrace as having a value. So science, all the different areas of, of knowledge contribute to our understanding of the world, to our understanding Hashem. But the branches of knowledge all face the center branch, which is Torah. Torah is superior. Torah is authoritative. Torah is the core. And the other branches of knowledge have value, but they're secondary and subservient to Torah. The other branches of knowledge, of disciplines of knowledge, have to conform to what Torah tells us. 
So that's one interpretation, the image of the gra, of the different branches of the menorah, representing different branches of knowledge that we can attain, chemistry, biology, and physics, and understanding all the different areas of the world. For Avaron Luchzitin Zatzal, it was English literature and poetry, and that we access these bodies of knowledge, these disciplines of knowledge, because rather than distract us from understanding Hashem, they contribute towards our understanding of Hashem and His world, but we have to realize those branches are mul menorah, they serve the center branch, they have to conform to Torah, and they are secondary to Torah. There are other interpretations that the center branch represents, the Talmidei Chachamim, the Rabbanim and the Rashi Yeshiva, and the other branches, they're the Balabatim. They work hard to support and to bring light and to illuminate. There's a partnership, but I heard this from a Rosh Hashiva at a graduation a few years ago. But the uh, other branches face Mulpanam Menorah. They have a role to play. They contribute light. There's a partnership, but they face that middle branch. Anyway, not the way uh, our shul is constructed. But nonetheless, the middle branch is paid by and subservient to the outer branches. But uh, that's the second interpretation. A third interpretation is an Imre Chaim. You knew we were going to quote a vision of Rebbe, right? So the Imre Chaim in our last parashash year of the season. So the Imre Chaim, the vision of Rebbe says the following. I love this interpretation. For the Imre Chaim and for many of the Hasidic Rebbe's, everything is about Shabbos. The whole world, life is all about Shabbos. Every Pasuk is interpreted through Shabbos. We only live for Shabbos. Our whole function is for Shabbos. Everything about life is for Shabbos. Because Shabbos is made olam abba. When you are living in the weekday, and you're, it's a very sober existence. There are pogroms and persecutions and people who want to kill you. There are bills to pay and responsibilities and chores and to-do lists. Who wants to be in the weekday? You get to Shabbos. Shabbos is main olam haba. You take all your troubles and travails and you put them away on the shelf and you get a taste of the world to come. Yom, waiting for the Yom Shekulo Shabbos. Shabbos is eternity and serenity and rest. So here too, the Imre Chaim, the vision says the following. The six branches represent the six days of the week. That middle branch is the Helig Shabbos. If you're living Yom Rishon Shabbos, Yom Sheni Shabbos, Yom Shlishi Shabbos, if your six weekdays are all pointed in the direction of Shabbos, they're all about getting to Shabbos. They're all about drawing from the previous Shabbos. If the weekdays all point towards Shabbos, then then all seven candles illuminate. They light up the world. If the six week, if Shabbos bends towards the six weekdays, you can't wait for Shabbos to end, and you're counting down for Avdallah, and Shabbos is miserable and torturous and restrictive and a burden, and you can't wait to end it and to make Avdallah, and you daven Marav before the time of Avdallah so you can make Avdallah right at Yitzhiya's Shabbos because you can't wait for Shabbos to end. If Shabbos candle, if the middle candle is facing the branches, then your whole week is dark. But if your whole week faces the Shabbos branch, then your whole week is illuminated, is light. If all week long you're planning for Shabbos, you're cooking for Shabbos, who's going to be a guest for Shabbos, what's going to be a divine Torah for Shabbos, which is miracle you're going to sing the Shabbos, what's your Shabbos table going to look like, which is the best piece of meat that you're going to, nah, I found a better piece of meat, so we'll eat this one on Wednesday night. If your whole branches of the week bend towards Shabbos, mul pinea menorah, then yairu, then your whole week is illuminated, is light is on fire. But if it's the opposite, 
If Shabbos points to the whole week, if you spend all Shabbos talking about what you're going to do Motzei Shabbos and what you're going to do Sunday and you can't wait for the week for the Shabbos to end so Shabbos is all about getting back to the week then your whole week is dark. It's a great Amrachayim. It's a Vishnetzer Rebbe. Okay. The Heilig of Vishnetzer. Weiter. So we light the, light the uh, menorah. El Mul Penei HaMenorah. Then we have the consecration of the Levium. We get to the next section which is all about the Levium. So here we have a Pasuk. Paraches Pasuk Yudtes, page 776. The Pasuk says, tells us, and I want you to tell me what is the phrase that jumps out at you. That's a little bit, Pasuk Yudtes rather. I assigned the Levium to be presented to Aaron, his sons, from among the children of Israel, to perform the service of B'nai Yisrael in the tent of the meeting, and to provide atonement for B'nai Yisrael, so there will not be a plague among B'nai Yisrael when B'nai Yisrael approach the sanctuary. Is there a phrase, is that Pasuk brought to you by a certain phrase, over and over and over again? Did anybody look inside? Perak Ches Pasuk Yudtes. Chapter 8, verse 19. What phrase is there over and over and then over and over and over again? B'nai Yisrael. How many times is the phrase B'nai Yisrael used here? I'll give you a shortcut to figure it out. Look at Rashi. Look at Rashi. Pasuk Yudtes. I now can't see Rashi without wearing these things. I'm getting older. Pasuk Yudtes. Chamisha palmim nerem B'nai Yisrael b'mikrazeh. Five times it says B'nai Yisrael in this Pasuk. Rashi says B'nai Yisrael is mentioned five times in this Pasuk. And the number five should immediately jump out at you. Five is? Five are the books of the? Torah. Right? Pesach Seder just ended. Five of the books of the Torah. Chamisha Chumshei Torah. So Rashi says the expression, the phrase B'nai Yisrael is mentioned no less then five times in this Pasuk, in allusion to the Chumash, which is made up of five books. Beautiful. Wonderful. Wonders the Chidush Arim. Wonders the uh, Rav Yitzchak Meir of Ger, the first Ger Rebbe. Why here? Why here? We're in the middle of Bamidbar. We're in the fourth book of the Torah. Now we mention Bnei Yisrael five times. Now we allude to Hashem loves Klal Yisrael so much, like the Chamisha Chumshei Torah. Why here? Why not earlier? When the Torah was given, use that expression five times and allude to it will be made of five books. Maybe even in Boratius, Av Mitzchayim Yaakov, use the expression that you're going to create a Klal Yisrael B'nai Yisrael and be prophetically describing that there will be five books of the Torah. Why all the way here? In the middle of the book of Bamidbar, the second to last book of the Torah, why did it wait till here? Listen to what the Ger Rebbe, what the Chidush Yarim says. Fantastic. What's the context where this Pasuk is brought? Where's the context where we have B'nai Yisrael five times? In the consecration of the Levium. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is tapping the Levium and saying, you have a special mission. You have a special purpose. You're not like the rest of those Yisraelim. You're going to carry the Mishkan. And when the Karbanos are being offered, you're going to sing beautiful melodies and fill the Mishkan with the sound of song and joy and happiness. You, Levium, have a special purpose. So what do the rest of Kla Yisrael think? How do the rest of Kla Yisrael feel, says the Chidush Yarim? Like Aaron HaKohen. Why, what about me? What about me? I want to be a Levi. I want to be a Kohen. You know the old joke about the Kohen who comes to the rabbi? Everyone knows that old joke. Why do you want to be a Kohen? My father was a Kohen. My grandfather was a Kohen. Everybody knows that joke. So I want to be a Kohen. I want to be a Levi. 
It's not fair to me. Why the Levian being consecrated and I, just an ordinary, regular, mundane member of the Yisraelim, I'm on the outside, says the Ger Rebbe, that's why Kodesh Baruch Hu comes and he says, B'nai Yisrael five times. And what's the five times an allusion to? Chamishei Chomshei Torah. Now each of those five books is separate, distinct, but they're all equally important. And even though each tells a different story, and even though each represents a different period, and even though they're very, very different, they're equal. Kodesh Baruch Hu didn't create one book of the Torah. You ever wonder why? We're going to have that in our parsha too, if we ever get to it. But the upside-down nuns that bracket it off, and really there were supposed to be seven books of the Torah, not five, and our parsha, Uvenu Chayomar, and so on. But why didn't HaKadosh Baruch Hu just create one ongoing, big, thick book called the Torah? Why is it called the Chumash? Chamishei Chumshei Torah. Why do I need five? Says the Ger Rebbe, because the five show me a precedent where HaKadosh Baruch Hu is saying, I can have separate but equal things. There are Leviim, but there are Yisraelim, and there are Kohanim, and nobody is superior, and nobody is better, and no one's greater. There are simply different but equal books, and each is holy in its own right, and each tells its own story, and each serves its own purpose, and each offers its own testament to Hashem and to His world. And therefore, B'nai Yisrael is mentioned five times here in the section of the Leviim to reassure and to validate us all that there's a place for everyone. I'm not talking about men and women are separate but equal in that usual classic uh, discussion, debate, what some consider apologetics, what most are, I consider genuine and, and accurate. But we're talking about among Kohanim, Levim, and Yisraelim. It's not just a gender discussion, it is a tribal discussion. I want to be a member of that tribe. Why do you get to be a member of this tribe? You can't join Kohanim, you can't just join the Levim. There are Kohanim who want to leave the Kahuna. Tragically, we get that question of Kohanim who are struggling to find a shidduch or to remarry and, and converts and divorcees are off the table and they meet someone and now they want to know, how can I, where's my out? How can I leave the kahuna? And they ask shilas and they investigate their family background in order to be able to find a way out. We should all be struggling to find a way in. But either way, we should be happy with where we are. B'nai Yisrael five times. Keneged Chamishei Chumshei. Keneged the Chamishei Chumshei Torah. Each tells its own story. We are all separate but equal. Good. Perchas, now go back a Pasuk, to Pasuk Tazayin. Bless you. Go back to Pasuk Tazayin. Same section, same page. Perchas, Pasuk Tazayin. So in the same context, the Levim are being tapped. The Pasuk says, Kinesunim nesunim heim ali mitoch b'nei Yisrael, tachas bitras korechem b'chor mikol b'nei Yisrael, kol m'b'nei Yisrael, lakachti osam li. Zog the Pasuk. Every firstborn of the b'nei Yisrael became mine. Man, livestock, on the day I struck every firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. We just made a siyam yesterday. Those who learned the daf yomi, a meseches b'choros. Mazel tov to us. We made a siyam. Meseches b'choros tells all about whether b'chor behema, the halachas of b'chor behema, of what happens, the firstborn of your animals. That, until today, it's a halacha. We were on a farm earlier this year, owned in Eretz Yisrael, owned by observant Jews, who talked about how the Rabbanut comes in order to, in fact, confirm that they are observing the laws of, laws of Bechor Behema, even today. How they're observed today is an interesting question. Bechor Behema, Meiser Behema, and the like. So this Pasuk is the source from Bechor Mibnei Yisrael, on page 776, Pasuk Tazayim. So these two words are redundant. Ki nisunim nisunim Hema. Why does it say it twice? 
One thing we've tried to do over the years, we've moved away this year a lot from the text-based. We used to read very carefully and closely, and I would try to stimulate to you to ask questions about the text that bother you, and then we'd analyze the Rishonim to see who was bothered by the same question, the answers they gave. We moved away from that a little bit this year, and I'm sharing Vortlach and hopefully inspirational Divrei Torah. Maybe we'll come back to it next season. But if we were still doing that, I would have said to you in this Pasuk, what bothers you? And hopefully you would answer, undoubtedly by now, loyal Talmidim, you would answer, ki nisunim nisunim heimali. What do you mean nisunim nisunim? It's redundant. Does our article even bother translating the word nisunim nisunim? For presented, presented are they. Okay. For presented, comma, presented are they. It's very clumsy. Nobody speaks like that. What does it mean, nisunim, nisunim hema? So, who's the first commentary we always turn to? Rashi. So, what does Rashi say? Nisunim, nisunim. Nisunim lamasa, nisunim lashir. What does that mean? The Levium have been designated, have been tapped, have been charged with two missions. What are the two missions? What are their two responsibilities and obligations? Masa and shir. What are masa and shir? Masa is? Carrying. Carrying. The Levium are tasked with carrying the components to disassemble the Mishkan, to carry it and its Kalim, to carry. They have to be strong, they have to work out, they have to be built. The Levium carry. The Levium carry the Kalim. Our tradition is the Kalim are really carrying the Levium. But Lamasa, the Levium have to carry. They carry. And Lashir, what is Shir? Sing. 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 Now is not the time, but there's a big machlokis in the Gemara. Iker Shir Bekli, Iker Shir Bepeh. Was the core of the music in the Mishkan with instruments, or was the core, was it central with singing with the mouth? Which is the primary, which is secondary? How did they fulfill this responsibility, the obligation of shir, of singing? It's a very, very powerful um, message to us about the value and the place of melody and song in Judaism. Song is among the most powerful mediums. It transports us. You hear a song, that you haven't heard in 40 years ago, you remember exactly where you were, the smell that smelled, the people you were with, how you felt, the age you were, all song. Song does that more. If you saw a picture of camp 40 years ago, it wouldn't have the impact of transporting you the way it does when you hear that song that you used to listen to. Song has an incredible opportunity. It makes you cry. It makes you spontaneously dance. Song makes you happy. It makes you sad. Song is a very, very powerful medium. And we call that sheer. What's the difference between Shira and Zimra? You should have been at my daughter's bat mitzvah because that's what she spoke about and I'm not going to repeat it to teach you a lesson for next time. But Shira and Zimra, sometimes, we, maybe we'll share it another time, but Rav Pincus has a magnificent insight. Sometimes we call song Shira, sometimes we call it Zimra. Sometimes the Pasuk says Mizmor Shir, and sometimes it says Shir Mizmor. What's the difference between the two and why does one come first and the other come second? Another time. So nisunim, nisunim. So the Levim have two jobs, two responsibilities. I have to keep you coming back. I need to know the end of July you'll still be there for me. So, good. Mirz Hashem. So nisunim, nisunim. The Levim says Rashi was bothered. You people weren't, but Rashi was bothered. Nisunim, nisunim. Why is it redundant? Why is it twice? And Rashi tells us, to reveal to us that the Levim have two jobs. They carry and they sing. Says the Imrechaim, the Vishnitz Rebbe, our last Vishnitz for the day. I love this. I want to just make something clear. Chasidish Vortloch are absolutely not the Pshat and the Pasuk. They're not trying to be the Pshat and the Pasuk. 
When we share an Imre Chaim, or a Kotzker, or a Berdichever, or a, or a, or a uh, Chidush Arim, we're not trying to understand the Pshat and the Pasuk. What the Hasidic Rebbe's did is they took the Pasuk and used it as a platform to teach a message they want to communicate. It's an amazing pedagogic tool. They're not saying this is the true meaning of the Pasuk. Maybe at some place, at some layer, at some level it is, but I'm not sure even they believe that. What they were saying is, I have a curriculum of Jewish ideas I want to teach and communicate and inspire you with. And now I take psukim that are allusions to it, and they become my vehicle, my instrument to get that message across. I think that was true what we saw about the Shiva Haneros. Again, is that the Pshat, six weekdays, and the Shabbos in the middle? And it's true about this one. So back to this. When life feels like a masa, a burden, when we're collapsing underneath it, when we're carrying pain and suffering and challenge and hardship, when we're living in a period of darkness, it's still a time of sheer. Those who believe in Hashem are still song, singing His song. They're still singing Shiros V'tishbachos. We do not divide. We don't say that Judaism, joy and happiness and faith in Hashem is only in the periods and the times where you see Hashem. <coughs> we do not say that. For us, Hain Lamasa, Hain Lashir. The Levium carried and Levium sang and they did both at the same time. They sang when it was happy, and they sang when it felt like a masa. You don't just sing when it's happy. If you think our relationship with Hashem is like a relationship of marriage, the bond, the love, the loyalty can't just be there in the times of bliss. There, there are times of challenge and hardship and bearing a burden and carrying a load and feeling like you're crumbling and collapsing. And hein lamasa, hein l'shir, there has to be a sense of singing and of joy in that time too. Now, I mentioned in the Siddur snippet the other day an amazing Chassam Sofer who says, what is the very first mitzvah, a bar mitzvah, a, a, a boy turns 13, a girl turns 12, they become obligated and responsible for the yoke of mitzvahs. What is the very first mitzvah they perform? What's the first mitzvah they encounter? What is their very first mitzvah? So Chassam Sofer, I quoted the other night, has a magnificent insight. He says in his tshuvas, and he says in his parish on Chumash Pashas Vayichi, he says the very first mitzvah they find is testing to see who listens to Siddur snippets, and this is not a very good response rate, but the first mitzvah is Simcha. Isn't that an amazing answer? The very first mitzvah a boy or girl do when the sun sets on their they turn 12 or 13, the first mitzvah they do is smile. Ivdu es Hashem b'simcha. That's why we're talking about it in Siddur snippets, in Mizmor Lasoda. Pasuk, ivdu es Hashem b'simcha. We're supposed to serve Hashem. There is a mitzvah not just do mitzvahs with simcha, there is a mitzvah to be b'simcha. Tachas asher lo'avad, asher lo'kecha, b'simcha uvetiv le'vav. Hashem says, I visit the, the tochacha upon you because you didn't live b'simcha. Be happy, be joyous, smile. The first mitzvah we do is the mitzvah of simcha. You could smile. Boom, the clock turns, the sun sets, you're a bar and mitzvah. So others say the first mitzvah is shema. Kabbalah s'olmach I mean, The first mitzvah you do is accept the yoke of heaven. Shema. So they say, and why is that the first mitzvah? 
Because it's a Kabbalah Zohar Machus When? At night. Kriya Shema Shal Arvis. Mesechus Brachos begins. Kriya Shema Shal Arvis. Why? Because for a Jew, the proof, the evidence, the, the affirmation that I believe in Hashem is when I'm a Kabbal Omach Hushemayim, not in the morning, not when the sun is bright in the day and there's a bright day ahead and positive and fun and love and good and joy and I can see clearly and everything makes sense. That's not the test of faith. It's Kriya Shema Shal Arvis. It's at night when there's darkness, darkness, and one sits with wonder and fear and doubt and there's darkness, and you don't understand anything, and nothing makes sense, and one can't see anything clearly, and yet they still recite Kriyashma, Kabbalah's Omachu Shemaim at night. That is the testament of a faith, of a Jew with great faith, of a Jew with great faith. So here the vision that says, Nisunim, Nisunim, Masa, and Shir, not mutually exclusive and independent, but at the same time. To be filled with Shira, to sing when everything makes sense, and to continue to sing when it feels like a masa, even when it feels like a burden. And if you think that's impossible, if you think that's impossible, and it feels impossible for our tra travails and challenges, we all know the story. We know the stories of Jews who went to their death singing animamen on their lips. That is exactly nisunim nisunim, masa and shir, masa and shir. When I had our Poland trip a couple summers ago, and we sat in Treblinka, there's nothing left of Treblinka. There's just monuments in the place where Treblinka was. And when we sat in Treblinka, we sang the song, one of the most famous animamins we know was composed, the Majitzer Animamin, on the train to Treblinka. And how that tune survived and was taught and continues till today, where we still sing that animamin that was composed literally on the train to Treblinka. And the groups of Jews who joined arms and sang animamin as they walked into the gas chamber. Hain Lamasa, Hain Lashir. Hain Lashir. If we think it's impossible, we should know. And I'm not judging anyone who didn't sing it. It's completely understandable. It's much more natural to have not sung. Khalila, God forbid, we're not judging anyone who didn't sing in those moments. But if we're wondering, is that even possible? Can we even imagine? Is it even a possibility? Is there a precedent? The answer is absolutely yes. There's eyewitness testimony to Jews, Hain Lamasa, Hain Nashir, who were able to fulfill at that level. Okay, let's keep going. We have the story of the Levium, of their service. We have a discrepancy in the age. Were they 25? Were they 30? Why the difference between the two? It's not now. We've discussed it in the past. The Pasha then gets to the story of Pesach Sheni, which we've also discussed in the past. I uh, wrote up a whole article once about Pesach Sheni and the most recent, the most modern, Example of Pesach Sheni was when Rabbi Herschel Schachter, Rabbi J.J. Schachter's father, Zechron Levracha, uh, liberated Buchenwald. He held a Pesach Sheni Seder in Buchenwald. And we have pictures of that Pesach Sheni Seder, literally designated for those who didn't have an opportunity. Just like in our Parsha, the people who came who didn't have the opportunity and they complained to Moshe. This is a theme of our Parsha, I would argue, and have previously and in other contexts. What do they come, bless you, and what do they say to Moshe? What's their argument? Lama nigara. It's not fair to us. Lama, why should we be deprived? Imagine I tell you a week before Pesach, stop cleaning, don't buy all the thousand dollar a pound matzah, you don't have to make the Seder, you're exempt. You were doing a mitzvah, and it turns out, technicality, you're exempt this year, no Pesach for you. Tell me, what's your reaction gonna be? Are you gonna break down crying, it's not fair to me, what do you mean? 
or are you going to be skipping away the shira of the tishbachos? No Pesach for me, yippee! Which way will you be answering? So some say the lesson of Pesach Sheni is Lama Nigara. Here you have a group of Jews like Aaron and the Nesim says, it's not fair to me. What do you mean I'm being deprived of this mitzvah opportunity? <coughs> what do you mean I'm being deprived of this? What were they doing? They were carrying the bones of Yosef or maybe Nadavanaviu, or they were carrying the bones of a mace mitzvah. The Gemara Sukkah has a three machlokas, which bones exactly were they carrying? It seems they were carrying the bones of Yosef. Rabbi Ari Khan of Barilan University writes a beautiful essay. He says, it's no coincidence that we learn the holiday of second chances. Pesach Sheni is the holiday of second chances in the merit of the person who gave a second chance. Yosef gave his brothers a second chance. So from Yosef, they carried his bones. That's why they were tummy. That's why they couldn't participate. That's why they needed the makeup date. From the individual who gave a second chance, we learn about the idea of second chances. Much more about this. We've discussed it previously, and we've written about it. Go to rabbiefremgoldberg.org, and you will find it. Next, we have the Chatzotros, which uh, ordered the people to move when it was time to journey. Only api Hashem yachanu, api Hashem yisau. When Hashem tells us we stop, when Hashem tells us we go. What a powerful message too. Our journey through life sometimes feels random or chance. How did we end up in this job? How did we end up in this neighborhood? How did we end up in this circumstance? How did we end up with these friends? How did we end up in this predicament? How did we end up here? And the answer is, a person has to always say to themselves, I'm here by design. There is a reason I'm here. What is the reason? What is my responsibility? What is my mission? But the Baal Shem says, a person should always ask themselves, right? Why was I meant to see that? Why was I meant to hear that? Whatever we see, whatever we hear, whatever we are, whoever we're with, we were meant to be there. It doesn't mean necessarily permanently. We can try to change jobs or change neighborhoods if we feel their bad influence on us. But Api Hashem, the journeys of our life, like the travels of the Jewish people in the Midbar, are Api Hashem. They're directed and they are by design. The order of breaking the camp. Moshe invites Yisro, the bottom of page 784. I love this section. Here we hear about Chovav ben Reuel again. Yisra, Moshe's father-in-law. And yet again, Moshe is departing from the normal practice and he is begging his in-law to stay. What do you mean you're going? Don't go. You can't leave. You have to stay. I can make that joke now because I'm on the in-law club. <laughs> so Yisra is saying, uh, Moshe says, don't leave. Don't go. You have to come with us. Come with us. And he says, I'm not coming. I'm only going to my land. And Moshe begs him, We need you to stay. You'll be our eyes. How is Yisro going to be their eyes? If you come with us, it'll be good. For us, it'll be good to you. How does it end, by the way? Does Yisro stay or go? What? I think it he goes? Really? Where does it say that? Torah doesn't tell us whether he stays or goes. The Torah never finishes the conversation. It's a real uh, cliffhanger. And it's very frustrating. The text itself never tells us. Was Moshe persuasive? Did Yisro stay? Or was Yisro stubborn? Did he leave? Did he go home? And it's a machlokas rishonim. The mafarshim here on these pesukim debate. Why would the Torah tell us a story and not give us the ending? Why would it leave it open-ended? Clearly, the end of the story is not the important part. What is the story? What's the important part is that Moshe wants Yisra to stay. And why does want Moshe want Yisra to stay? 
What is different about Yisro than every other person who is traveling with the Jewish people? Yisro is a ger tzedek. Yisro has chosen this. He is what other denominations call a Jew by choice. We call them converts. Other denominations call them a Jew by choice. Yisro is the only Jew by choice. And Moshe says, you will be our eyes. You know, have you ever been to Israel with someone who's never seen Israel before? Yes. Have you ever experienced Shabbos with somebody who never had Shabbos before? And how do we describe that? You know, my trip to Israel was amazing. I saw it through the children's eyes. Moshe says, we'll see life through your eyes because for us, the mountain was held over our head. For us, we had no other choice. For us, we were born into this. We need you to stay because you bring an energy and a passion. You opted in when others were born in and therefore we need you to stay. But we don't know, did he stay or did he leave? What's the, uh, what's the argument? Moshe says, you have to stay. And what does Yisra say? Lo elich. I'm not going. Ki im el el moladati. So I saw a very interesting uh, Hasid Shavort. Hasid Shavort, where did I see it? Okay, hold on one second. Where did I see it? It's definitely not in the Rabbi Salavichik Chumash, right? I'm going to guess. Is it also an Emre Chaim? Oh, one more Emre Chaim. One more vision, sir. I'm sorry. I'm so grateful to my friend Mendy who got me this uh, Imre Chaim. You should be grateful because we quote it every week. This too is not the Pshat and the Pasuk. But as I said, the Psukim become the instrument, the vehicle to get the message across. Says the Imre Chaim, what's the debate? Moshe says, We're going to the Makom. When you see the word Makom, it's also a name for Hashem. One of Hashem's name is Makom. Hamakom Yenachim Eschem. Baruch HaMakom Baruch Hu. We use the name Makom, place, to describe Hashem, who fills every place, who is every place. So Moshe says, you got to come with us. We're going Ela Makom. We're going where? To Hashem. To which Yisro says, Lo Eilich. I'm not going there. Where am I going? El Artsi ve'el Molarati Eilich. I'm going to my hometown. I'm going back to where I came from. Says the vision of Tershtei Drochem Ba'avodos Hashem Yisbarach. There are two different paths towards serving Hashem. His bonus begadlus abore vizu aderech agavoa. His bonus beshiflus atmoshim mevil. His bonus begadlus abore. One can concentrate on the greatness, the loftiness of the Almighty, and strive for it, and to realize we are the children of Hashem. We're royalty. We're princes and princesses. You could concentrate on godless Hashem and therefore be lifted up, or you could concentrate on shiflus adam that we are pathetic, nothing, no good, worm food that we will end up in the ground. You can either see ourselves as tachas alokim, we're just, like David HaMelech says, we're just beneath Hashem, or you can see that we're just above a worm. Omar Moshe lechosno, so Moshe says to his father-in-law, nosim anachnu elamakom, makom zem makom mashal olam. We're going to Hashem, the lofty, great, incredible Hashem. We're just beneath Him. We're striving, we're aspiring, we're reaching up to Hashem. Anu mizbonenem yashar begad sabore. We're going right up to Hashem. By realizing Hashem is amazing and great and trying to be like Him, we will immediately feel our humility. Amar lo Yisra, Yisra says, I do the opposite. I can't start there. I'm not at the level of talking about God's greatness. I'm not at philosophy, you know, the PhD philosophy. I'm at high school philosophy. 
זה מדרגה גבוה מדי בשבילי, כי מלאצי ואומנתי אליך, אני אסכלס בוני בשפלס עצמי, ארצי לאן אתה הולך למקום עפר רימה ותולה, מולדתי מאין באסה. ארצי המולדתי means I know where I come from, and I know where I'm going. Duh, person, the Mishnah Narava says, person should always know where they come from and where they're going. You come from the ground and you're going back to the ground. So the vision of says that Rechaim says, this is the conversation between Moshe and Yisro. Moshe says, come with us. We're going to have an incredible fabrengen. What a kumzitz. Unbelievable. Come with us. Elamakom. Spirituality, singing, loftiness. Come with us. We're reaching up to Hashem. Yisro says, I don't get close to Hashem by trying to touch the infinite. I get closer to Hashem first by going to where I come from. When I realize my humility, my worthlessness, my nothingness, when I recognize how mortal I am, <coughs> how finite I am, so what stimulates the growth? The vision of obviously was a Hasidish Rebbe, but the Musr schools had the exact same debate. Slabodka, Alter, Kelm had the exact same debate. What do we focus on? How does a person grow most? How does a person grow best? When we focus on godless Adam or shiftless Adam? If you talk about man's greatness, I've told you this many times. Slabodka was man's greatness, godless Adam. If you spend time with the Talmidim of Slabodka, of Yaakov Kamenetsky, Rav Ruderman, Rabbi Taitz, Rav Hutner, and on and on, they were regal, they were royal. Because Slabodka talked, godless Adam, do you know who you are? The godless Adam. There was a tailor on staff at Slabodka to sew on a button because you weren't allowed in the yeshiva if a button was missing. Godless Adam. There's no schlumpiness. In Slabodka, if your top button wasn't buttoned and your tie wasn't all the way to the top, you couldn't walk into the base medrash. Slabodka. I saw actually a couple weeks ago, I'm going to talk about it in a moment, but I get this l- newsletter, Rav Yashav Zatzal's Torah. So I talked about Rav Yashav at the very end of his life. He died over 100 years old, I think 103. But even at the end of his life, he maintained the same learning schedule where he was awake at 3 a.m. to begin his learning for the day. Even most of the, after the Pesach Seder, if it ended at 1, he was still up at 3, even when he was 100 years old. So his grandchild, who was with him, who was Meshamishim, described that one morning he woke up for his 3 o'clock learning, and he would button his shirt, and he couldn't get the top button button, and he insisted on doing it himself and being independent. But at 103, his fingers, the fine motor use of his finger, he couldn't tap that button. So the grandson said to him, Zaidi, just so you'll learn with the button open. So he said, it's not covered at Torah to learn without your button closed. Right? Rav Yasha didn't go to Slabodka. But that was godless Adam. That's Slabodka. Godless Adam. What, what are you talking about? I'm royalty. I'm not going to learn Torah without, without my top button buttoned, looking like a schlump and schlemiel and schlemazel. I'm not going to learn Torah. Godless Adam. That was Slabodka. Other Muslim schools were shiftless Adam. You're nothing. They would, they would, they would, the, the best student in the yeshiva had the privilege of getting to wash the toilet. Because cleaning out the toilet was the highest reward in the yeshiva. Because shiftless Adam, we realize that we're, we're just utter nothingness, utter nothingness. So the Vishnitzer are saying, this is the Machlokish Moshe Yisro. Moshe says, come with us, Elamakom, Makom Oshalolam. We're going, Elamakom, come Fabreng with us. We're going to feel Hashem. We're with Hashem. And Yisro says, that's not what stimulates my growth, feeling godless Adam. I grow through shiftless Adam. I'm going El Artsi Ve'el Molarati. When I think about Artsi Molarati, when I think about where I come from, I come from the ground and I'm going back to the ground. And when I concentrate on that humility, that's what makes me grow. That's what makes me grow. We were at a staff meeting yesterday because we are uh, working on trying to come up with a fine-tuning the brand of BRS. 
what is our motto, what is our slogan, what is our brand. We're fine-tuning it a little bit more, maybe even updating it. So we were talking about, and we're, we're working on, I'll give you a little preview. We talked about reaching up, reaching out, reaching in. Reaching up, reaching out, outreach, reaching in. So that's the reaching up. Elamakom. Come with us, Elamakom. Reaching up. Also have to reach out. And the humility is reaching in to know who we are and have a sense of, of humility. That's the debate that's going on. Okay, Viter, because we're still doing the overview. We haven't started the class yet. So Viter. <laughs> now we get to the, the journey. Three day travel. The Aaron is traveling before them three days. The cloud is upon them. On page 786, we have the inverted upside down. These were familiar with these Monday, Thursday, Shabbos. We take the Torah out. When we put the Torah back, why is it bracketed off? The Jewish people were running away from Harsinai. We know this was to break up between the different sections. These upside down nunin. I had a lot I want to talk about it, but the hour is late. So maybe we'll save this for next year. Uh, why are they upside down? Like a fish. Yaakov wanted his children to be like a fish. A fish swims, swims upstream. We'll talk more about that another time. The upside down bracketed nunin. But here in the context of these tukim, we have a very interesting thing that I want to share with you for a moment. The Pasuk says... Go back. I'm sorry. My bad. Go back. Perak test Pasuk of Gimel. Top of page 782. I'm sorry. My bad. But when the Torah was telling us about... Um, when the Torah was telling us about the travels. Remember I said the life, the journeys of our life, the chapters of our life are Api Hashem. Just like the journeys of Klai Yisrael, Hashem is orchestrating and directing exactly where we go and how we end up there. So in this context, we have a Pasuk. It says, Pasuk Chav Gimel, top of page 782. Those four, five words. Are they familiar to you? When do you say them? During? Excellent, Essie. During Hagba. During Hagba, we add on this half a Pasuk. Specifically from here and during Hagba. Very interesting thing. Where does Hagba come from? So there's a great article in Chakira in uh, volume 15 from 2013 by uh, Rabbi Tzvi Ron. And he has a great article about pointing to the Torah during Hagba. What is the source? Who here points to the Torah during Hagba? One person? I know that's not true. You're all just hedging because there wouldn't be a whole article about it if it were such an easy and obvious thing. Okay, I won't embarrass you. And if you point, what finger do you point with? The pinky finger, the forefinger. Okay, where does it come from? So we already have going back to Tanakh, but before Ezra reads the Torah to Klai Yisrael, the Pasuk says, Ezra opened the scroll before the eyes of the people, and he opened it, all the people stood silent. So we already have, in Nehemiah, tells a story that Ezra, before reading the Torah, he opened the Torah for everyone to see. The source is Mesech Sofrim, Perak Yedalad. Mesech HaSofrim, Perak Yedalad, says just as Ezra and Nehemiah, they open the Torah for everyone to see, so too we open the Torah. It's a mitzvah for men and women to see the writing, to bow and to say, Zos HaTorah Asher HaSam Hashem This course is, the source, Mesech HaSofrim, is quoted by the Rambam in his discussion of Hagba and by all the Rishonim, and it's codified in Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch of Yosef Kara quotes Hagba, you take the Torah, you place it before the Torah reading, um, and in the Shulchan Aruch here, it's interesting. When does Hagba happen? 
So the Shulchan Aruch says you do Hagba before you read the Torah. Our Sephardi brothers and sisters still do it then. Hagba is before Torah reading. The Ramar of Moshe Isulis says we do Hagba when? After Torah reading, which is very interesting because early Ashkenazi authorities, the Kolbo and others, also talk about doing it beforehand. Where did the Ramah get that we move Hagba if Mesecha Sofram and based on Ezra Nechemia as they saw the Torah before they read from it, why did we move it afterwards? So a very interesting reason is suggested. But the Shayari Knesset Hagedola. He says, you know why? You know what happened? Jews in Shul started thinking that what's the most important part? When they do Hagba. And then when they read the Torah, that's when I start reading my Parsha printouts. That's when the Kiddush Club starts. So therefore they moved Hagba to the end in order to communicate Torah reading is the core. Hagba is secondary. You shouldn't miss either or any or the Haftorah either. But the Torah reading is primary and the Haftorah is secondary. That's perhaps why the Ramah moved it to later. Mesech Sofram quotes two psukim to recite when the Torah is lifted for Hagba from Dvarim and from Tehillim. However, some have a girsa, and this is what we do. We tag on exactly these words in our parsha, Al-Pi Hashem Biyad Moshe. According to the word of Hashem, they encamp. According to the word of Hashem, they journey. Al-Pi Hashem Biyad Moshe. This is, uh, Rechaim Velazhner says, that originally we said the entire Pasuk, not just Al-Pi Hashem. Revel Yashiv, the newsletter says, during Hagba would say the whole Pasuk here. We have cut it down, but some, the original custom, and even until Rav Yashiv would say the entire Pasuk, not only part of it. Now, Mesech Sofram says, what do you do during Hagba? No mention of pointing. Mesech Sofram says, you bow. We are supposed to bow. The Shulchan Aruch records that you're supposed to bow. Pointing during Hagba is not mentioned in any of the Rishonim. It's not mentioned in Shulchan Arach. It's not mentioned in any of the Nosekelim, any commentaries on Shulchan Arach. In fact, it's not mentioned until the 19th century. Rav Chaim Palaji and others are the first to mention this notion that you point during Hagba, and they bring all kinds of justifications and explanations for it. But the original source, Mesech Sofram, and the Shulchan Arach, which records the Halacha, is that you're supposed to bow not at your knees, at your waist, like you bow from modem, you're supposed to bow during Hagba. If you look around the room during Hagba, you'll see who knows Shulchan Aruch, who knows the Halacha. Because the proper thing is to bow, not to point. Pointing with your pinky, anyone know where it comes from? You are great scholars, because no scholars know where it comes from. We have no source for the idea of pointing with your pinky. We have a source, Rav Chaim Palaji, I said, and others try to offer a source for why point at all, why point with the finger. Maybe you bow and point at the same time, but the Shulchan Aruch, the Iker Din, is not to point. Rav, uh, the Arizal, Rav Shmuel Vital, the son of Rav Chaim Vital, quotes the Arizal, that the Arizal would come very close to the Bima during Hagba to be able to look into the Torah and to see the actual letters. That you're not Yotze Hagba, one shouldn't bow without seeing the writing in the Torah, the letters of the Torah. He would come close in order to be able to see. This is quoted by the Magan Avram, Shari Ephraim, the Mishnah Burah, and it is the proper practice to be close enough to the Torah during Hagba that you can see the letters. Not only should you see the letters, the Ben Ishchai, of Chaim, Yosef Chaim of Baghdad said that not only should you see the letters of the Torah, you should see your letter. We just celebrated Shavuos. And we have a tradition, there are 600,000 letters in the Torah. It's not accurate, but we'll go with it. There are 600,000 <laughs> letters in the Torah. And they correspond with the 600,000 Jews. Why? There's a letter in the Torah for every Jew. There's a place in Torah for every one of us. In fact, they say, the Hasidic Rebbe say, we have a halacha called Mukav Gvil. If two letters are not allowed to be touching, 
every letter has to be surrounded by blank parchment, the idea of margin. But what is the idea of the two letters not touching? Every one of us is distinct and special and singular. We are not touching. We're not trying to compete. We're not trying to live someone else's life. Everyone is different. And when I come up to the Torah and I find my Aleph, Ephraim Chaim, I find my Aleph, I say there's a place for me in Torah. I see myself in the Torah. That's the imagery of coming close during Hagbah, and we bow down during that moment. There's a lot more about Hagbah. It's a 15-page, 16-page article called Pointing to the Torah and Other Hagbah Customs in Chakira, Volume 15. But interesting, it comes from our Pasha, these words that some add on, and others say this whole Pasuk, that Api Hashem Yachanu and so on, Api Hashem Biyad Masha, because the Torah is being lifted. It's about to be brought back to the Aron. Api Hashem, it travels through the word of Hashem. It carries the word of Hashem with its travels and it carries that with us, with us too. Good. We had Yisra. We have the upside down nudes. We have the complainers. They're dissatisfied with the man. Moshe gives up. He was able to make it through the eagle. He was able to make it through so much other, so much else. But here now, he can't make it anymore. Moshe has had it with this incorrigible people and he's ready to give up. And then we have the story of the Sanhedrin. Moshe responds to the people, new prophets. The quail, Kosh rewards them with the Slav. And then we have Moshe's uniqueness challenged. We discussed this at length in the past, and we won't review it all right now, but Miriam speaks Lashon Hara about... Miriam speaks Lashon Hara about her brother. Speaks Lashon Hara about her brother, which is a very disturbing episode. Not only does she speak Lashon Hara about her brother, we then have a commandment. We have a mitzvah to remember. Zachor. Remember that Miriam spoke Lashon Hara about her brother. What was so terrible about what Miriam did? What happens to Miriam? She breaks out in Saras. Dr. Laura Greenbaum, who taught with me on Shavuos, when we talked about the communal policy on vaccination, she's amazing. She really communicated so well um, the scientific and medical position on vaccination, but I didn't know she'd be ending with a Dvar Torah, and she said, pointed to our Pasha, Bahaloscha, and she says, when Miriam misuses the power of speech, what happens? A contagious disease, tzara'as. And we see that if we misuse the power of speech to miseducate people and to campaign and advocate for the wrong things, contagious disease spreads. That's the consequence. That's the Torah's message. Very interesting uh, conclusion to her uh, part of that, to her Dvar Torah. So Miriam is struck with tzara'as. She's quarantined. She's outside the camp. And the Torah specifically tells us that we waited. The Jewish people waited before we continued. We waited for Miriam in order, to, uh, in order to continue, which is interesting. What did she do that was so terrible, so egregious, that she's quarantined, she's isolated? And what kind of mitzvah is this? In the effort to remember that there's a prohibition of gossip, we gossip about Miriam every day. Remember what Miriam did to her brother. So we're gossiping? That's what we're remembering, Zachor? So there's a machlokas, a big discussion about what exactly are we remembering. I would like to suggest to you that perhaps what we're remembering is not the negative about Miriam, but we're remembering that we waited. See, the Pasuk says, The nation wouldn't continue till we had Miriam. And Rashi the Mepharshim tell us why. Why did we wait and what merit? Because she waited for her brother. When Moshe was put in a basket, rather than walk away, she waited and she watched and she ensured that even when Bisya, the daughter of Paro, took Moshe, that Moshe would be able to nurse from his mother and that Moshe one day would rise to become our greatest prophet, our uh, greatest unparalleled prophet and leader of the Jewish people. And the Medrash says, in the merit of her waiting, we waited. What is that notion of waiting? 
And what is this merit of waiting? This idea of waiting. So the idea of waiting is that when her parents despaired, when her parents separated, when her parents didn't want to bring more children into the world, it was Miriam who convinced her mother to beautify herself and attract her father's attention and create a sense of continuity. Hope and optimism and promise, that was Miriam's quality. When Moshe was put in the basket and everyone else gave up and went home, Miriam watched because she was hope and promise and optimism and the faith in a brighter future. And in the merit of her teaching that notion of optimism and hope and faith in a brighter future, the Jewish people wait for her. That there are mistakes that are made. She made a mistake, and our parsha is replete with Klai Yisrael making mistakes. But despite the mistakes that we make, we tap into that quality of Miriam, optimism, hope, and a brighter future. Bisalovich quotes the playwright Henrik Ibsen, who I never heard of, who said the most valuable trait of the Jewish people was their ability to wait. It's now 2,000 years that we await Mashiach. Every day we say, even though we may tarry, um, we wait for him every day. Such patience, the ability not to surrender, but to hope for a better future, provides sustenance to the nation of Israel. So that's what this playwright said. The most valuable trait of the Jewish people is our capacity to wait. We are a patient people. We have waited 2,000 years. We wait, and we have the ability to wait. Miriam waited, we waited for her, and it embedded within us that gift of that capacity to wait. What did Miriam do that was so wrong? What was the source of this Lashon Hara? There are again different interpretations. Bisalavitchik would quote from Rav Kook that Moshe was singular and unique. He's Av HaNavim, one of the 13 principles of faith of the Rambam, is to believe that Moshe is categorically different than all the other Nevi'im. And Miriam challenged that by speaking about him withdrawing from his wife and saying, you know, we're also prophets and we didn't withdraw. She was challenging his unique status. And that is a violation of one of the principles of faith. And for that, she was punished. What happens when she's punished? Moshe himself does what? Moshe davens for her. And what does he say when he davens for her? A very succinct tefillah. What does he say? The very end of the parsha, page 796, Perak Yud Beis Pasuk, Yud Gimel. Moshe Moshe cries out to Hashem and he says, Kel na rifa na la. Please God, heal her now. That's it. Please God, hear her now. And Rashi tells us, why didn't he elaborate? Why didn't he pledge to finish all Sefer Tehillim? Why didn't he say a super long Mishaberach? Rifa na la says Rashi, herech Moshe betfila, shloyu Yisrael omram achosa omedes betzarav hu omed omar betfila. Because people would say, his sister's suffering and he's davening. Relieve her suffering. Now, one of the ways you relieve her suffering is davening. But yet you see from here that you have to be metapel. You have to actually help the person who is suffering and not, not uh, excuse yourself through, through davening. So he doesn't elaborate on tefillah. Or davarach Rashi Rashi quotes a second position. Because people would say, yeah, Moshe... You know, it's just nepotism. When his sister is sick, he says, all safer to him. When we're sick, he barely says, Rafuah <laughs> So therefore, for his own sister, he said, Rafuah so no one could accuse him of nepotism. That is the second explanation. But it's very interesting. What does Moshe not do when he davens for his sister? He does not mention her name. Kelna Rafan Allah. He doesn't say, Kelna Miriam Ba. He doesn't mention her name. He just says, Miriam. He doesn't, I'm sorry, he just says, Kel na rifa na la. Why doesn't he mention the name? Why, by the way, when we mention a name, 
do we say the mother's name? The Pasuk says, We are identified and associated by our father's household. So why is it when we make a Mishaberach for Cholim, we say the mother's name? We say the mother's name. So the answer is, because the Pasuk says, Rav Yashav in his Pnei Tefila writes, the answer is, in Tehillim, when David HaMelech says, Hashem, I am your loyal servant. What does he say? Ani Avdecha Ben Amasecha. David HaMelech, when he appeals to Hashem, says, how can I invoke Hashem's sympathy and love and compassion? How can I invoke Hashem's rachamim? By associating with my mother, not my father. Ani Avdecha Ben Amasecha. So Rav Yashav Paskind, that only once a person leaves this world, where there's no more rachamim to try to invoke, then then we're known by our father's home. But in this world, when we say Tehillim for somebody, when we wish well for somebody, when we name, then it's then it's Ani Avdecha Ben Amasecha. If you're davening for someone for a shidduch or for their health or for whatever reason, we use the mother's name because a mother has what makes her a mother? She has a rechem. A womb is a rechem. She has rachamim. The rachim is the conduit of rachamim. So, ani avdecha ben amasecha, we use a mother's name. The Gemara says in Baruchos Davyad Beis, kol she'efshe levakish rachamim achadero ve'enam evakish nikra chote. Anyone who can daven for a friend and doesn't daven for them, they're called a chote, they're a sinner. If you can daven, you would learn of someone who's sick and you don't write their name down and you don't think of them during Rafa'inu and you don't mention their name during the Mishaber for Cholim, you're a chote, you're a chote. So the question is asked, well, that's obvious. Of course, you, you, if you could intervene, you have an obligation. If we believe davening is efficacious, then just like if a person collapses in front of me, I'm not entitled to look the other way. So I have to daven for someone, I'm not entitled to look the other way. So why did I need this special limud from a pasuk that anyone who could daven for someone and doesn't is called a chotei? So Rav Yashiv says, because I might have thought means when I can grab the thing and say clear and jumpstart their heart, when I can call 911, when I can give mouth to mouth, when I can wrap a tourniquet and start the, stop the bleeding. When is when there's something medical, physical that I could do? But davening is heebie-jeebie. Davening is mystical. Davening is, I would think maybe that's not called Losamara that's what the Pasuk is telling me. It means that too is Not only are you in violation of standing idly by while someone's bleeding to death, if you physically don't intervene and intercede, but if you spiritually don't intervene and intercede, then you're also called a chote. You learn about someone suffering and someone who's sick and you don't add them to your tefilos and you don't think about them, you are a chote. You have missed an opportunity and you've done a terrible disservice and a terrible injustice. Kel na rafan Allah. So what happened to saying Miriam's name and her mother's name? What happened? So we pass in the Magan Avram quotes in the name of the Ma'ariel that the only time you have to invoke a person's name when davening for them is when you're not in front of them. When you're in front of them, you dafka shouldn't mention their name. Some say. Because when you mention your name, you're creating a divine judgment Better not to mention a name. That's why Moshe in Miriam's presence just says, Not in someone's presence we mention their name, but in someone's presence, then it's not necessary to mention their, not necessary to mention their name. Okay, there's a lot more to talk about all over our Parsha, incredible Parsha. Wishing everyone a healthy and a happy and a wonderful summer. Rabbi Maskowitz, next Tuesday, 9.30 a.m. I'll see you all again at the end of July.